This is John Anderson Direct with Mary Eberstadt. My guest today comes from America. Mary Eberstadt holds the Panula Chair in Christian Culture at the Catholic Information Centre in Washington, D.C., and is Senior Research Fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. She's an essayist, a novelist, and a frequent public speaker whose books of non-fiction include How the West Really Lost God, A New Theory of Secularization, Adam and Eve After the Pill, Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution, and Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. And Mary's been talking about that here in Australia. Ironically, as we record, I'm in Sydney, she's in Melbourne, but we will be face to face before she returns home. Uh, and I think you'll enjoy very much her approach to some of the really troubling things that are besetting our societies today. Her social commentary draws from many intellectual disciplines and her books and essays have been translated into Spanish, French, Italian, Polish, Arabic, Dutch, Portuguese, Lithuanian, Hungarian and Turkish, which is remarkable. Central to her diverse interests are questions concerning the philosophy and counter culture or the culture of Western civilization and the fate and aspirations of postmodern man. Mary, thank you so much for giving us time today. Thanks for having me, John. Can I begin where I don't think other uh, conversationalists have begun? I was really struck by something that you said when you were on my good friend, Constantine uh, uh, Kissen and his offside, uh, Francis Foster, a trigonometry in London. You were talking about the BLM riots, the Black Lives Matter riots in the United States, and they were pretty bad. And there was a lot of rage over them from people, you know, sort of talking about irresponsibility and violence and, and, and they were ugly. But you saw something that I thought was very significant. You saw loneliness, I think, despair, unhappiness in the face of many of the young people participating. And I was struck by the way in which you were plainly seeing their humanity and almost recognising a cry for help, a cry for a bigger story, for a purpose. I, I think what I'm driving at is my impression is that you are driven in terms of your very active engagement in the public debate. You often say things, just as I do, that perhaps are not so popularly received, but you're driven by deep humanity, a deep concern for the well-being of young people in particular. Am I reading you properly? Yes, thank you. And to return to the question of those protests and riots uh, in summer of 2020 in the United States, I don't think most people outside the United States realize how significant those were. There were in that summer over 10,000 incidents of unrest, 500 of which turned violent. And that's to say Americans were, were subjected to lots and lots of video capturing all of that. And in that video, one can see the expressions of rage and disconnection on the faces of so many young people. And it was particularly striking to me, John, because as you know, my work has been trying to capture that in a different way for years now. I believe we have a serious problem among the young, and I believe it is stemming from 
a radical kind of disconnection from things that most of humanity has taken for granted from, from family, from church, from social groups. And I think we've really reached a tipping point with all of that. And part of why I feel compelled to make the case for conservatism in the public square is that I don't think the other side has an answer to any of that. I don't think progressives recognize the suffering out there that has been caused by radical social change in the United States and across the West. Yeah, just as an aside, before we come back uh, to, to the central issues here, I was in America recently and I was in a city that is widely regarded as one of the most progressive, in adverted commas, in America. And I actually met a couple of family ladies there, very nice middle Americans, and they were talking about those riots. They made the observation that the defunding police, the extraordinary answer to the problem, left them feeling more vulnerable than ever and tempted themselves to go out and buy handguns in case there weren't any police if somebody attacked a member of their family. I had a look at gun sales in America. They've been rising steadily. And these two ladies made the point that the irony of this is, having made us feel very exposed, having tempted us to think about buying handguns when we've never had them, they'll then turn around and call for gun laws. The very people who defunded the police have created an environment where we don't feel safe and to look after our families, we think we've got to go and do the thing the, very, the progressives least want us to do. The illogicality of all of this is one of the things that strikes me. Yes, and it is roiling city after city in the United States that are under progressive administrations. There is not a major city on the East Coast that you can enter these days without being struck by the difference between 10 years ago five years ago and today. And this is especially visible in Manhattan, for example. Uh, and it's one of the biggest problems we face in the US is this, this breakdown that I think uh, will be righted unlike some other kinds of breakdown in, in short order uh, as new administrations come in. So that's the good news, the guardedly good news. So to return, return then to, to what's happening um in terms of the modern language that you that is used, Australia is on a trajectory, I think, that is not dissimilar to yours. We might be in a different place. Some of the institutions in our country are a bit different about the rise of identity politics, uh, which I'd like to explore, is often attributed in conversations I find and in you know, writings and so forth to the grip that um, progressives, if I can put it that way, uh, I don't like that term very much, but anyway, we'll use it and everyone knows what we means by it. Uh, the grip they have over academia and have had for a long time, the way that's filtered into our schools, the way our children are raised. But you have a very different take indeed. Uh, in your latest book, Primal Screams, you're really offering a quite different explanation, one that centres on the decay of the family unit and the loss of a strong primal sense of identity. Everyone talks about identity politics in inverted commas. I'd love to hear your take on how you describe it. I was asked to in a, in a formal lecture a while ago. I don't think I did a very good job of it. You kind of know what it is when you see it. But what do we mean by identity politics? And why have we allowed ourselves to be so, why have we fallen for it? That's a great question. So identity politics begins in 1977 with a manifesto 
by a radical African-American feminist group called the Kambahi River Collective. This is the first time that the phrase identity politics appears. And it is worth reading that document, not for its literary stature, but for the fact that it tells us so much about what's about to come and what we are living with. In that document, the authors express their uh, dissatisfaction, their, their resignation to the fact that they can no longer trust the men in their lives. They can only trust people exactly like them, people who are victims exactly as they believe themselves to be. And the document is a kind of perverse declaration of independence from the traditional family, from society, from the opposite sex. That is to say, John, it's, it's an incredibly sad telling of a kind of suffering that these women were experiencing. Now, in our own day, when we see identity politics uh, on campus and elsewhere, and we see the kind of political theater that surrounds it, it's very easy for us to dismiss it. It's very easy to mock this stuff. But I think that underneath those acts of political theater is something real and profound. I think many, especially many young people in the West uh, are in the grips of an identity crisis. That's what their language tells us. They're always asking in effect, who am I? Where exactly do I identify on the LGBTQ spectrum or on the spectrum of feminist ideas or on the spectrum of uh, intersectionality and my Chicano heritage or my Slovak heritage, et cetera, et cetera. They're asking these questions constantly in a way that I think tells us that these people have been unmoored. You know, if you think about your own identity, John, if I were to ask you, who are you? And you were not to list all of your extraordinary professional affiliations and former affiliations. My guess is that you would say, uh, you, you would describe yourself in relation to members of your family. You might say, I'm a husband, I'm a father, et cetera, et cetera. This is ordinary language. This is how ordinary people talk. We have to understand that this is not the language we are hearing from the young, especially the university educated young. They are desperately trying to <clears throat> construct identities out of political abstractions like heteronormativity. Uh, they think that they are menaced by, again, political abstractions. The gender binary, for example, about which we hear so much uh, or free-floating oppression, uh, structural racism. These are very abstract categories. You have to go to a university to learn them. Ordinary people don't talk this way. So the fact that people, young people, are grasping at these categories to explain themselves tells us, that, tells me anyway, there are not enough people in their lives. There are not enough shared fellow users of ordinary language. And that is something I don't think we've seen before. The 1977 document that you referred to, I have read it. It is very sad. You do come away feeling very sorry for the people who put it together and their plight. But I think with you, I came away thinking they're looking in all the wrong places for the answers. I, and and uh, I'll just, we'll put up on the screen 
the name of the paper if anyone wants to have a look at it. Now, there was a time in my country when not many people went to university and they didn't have such a shaping influence. Today, of course, huge numbers of young people go to university and they tend to become the people who make up the cultural heft. So what might, for example, um, um, a critical theory was described by no less a figure than Steven Pinker as so extraordinary, you'd never think it'd gain any traction, but it has. It's, it, 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 it's, it's boiling over in our culture. It's reshaping it. It's leaving people really confused. You mentioned the 1970s when the term identity politics first came together. But I think you would say that a lot of this had its genesis in the so-called sexual revolution in the 1960s. That is not so much political as what's happened to people in their personal lives. And you've just alluded to it. The, the relative loneliness, we don't have as many people around, we're not in relationship with others. The 1960s, what happened? Are we right to see as a as sort of a fulcrum point when, when the West really started to lose its way? So first, John, I'd like to say that about identity politics, in a nutshell, I think that these people who believe they are victims are indeed victims. I think there is truth there, but they are not the victims of what they've been taught to believe. They are not the victims of the traditional family, for example, with its heteronormativity. Exactly the opposite is true. They are victims of loneliness and disconnection and of having been deprived of things that many generations before us took for granted, all generations, in fact, uh, that grounded people. For example, living in a large, robust family with all of its problems and neuroses, et cetera, uh, gave people connections they could trust. Living in a large family gives people knowledge of the opposite sex before they get launched into the world. They learn an understanding of the differences between boys and girls, men and women, et cetera. And they also acquire, in virtue of a large family, a lot of people who can help them in life, who can teach them things, who can teach them how to throw a football or how to make a connection to a job opportunity, for example. We have to understand that since the 1960s, uh, the sexual revolution, has wrecked all of that for a lot of people. So let's go to what happened in the early 1960s. The promise was that the sexual revolution would liberate men and women, right? And especially women. The promise was that <clears throat> uh, artificial contraception adopted en masse would strengthen marriages by giving people control over their fertility. All of this, probably seemed like common sense at the time. A lot of people believed in it. And yet over the decades, we saw quite the opposite happen. Instead of strengthening marriage, the post-revolutionary world saw marriage, uh, marital breakup on a scale never before witnessed. It saw cohabitation soar on a scale never seen before. Why does cohabitation matter? Because homes in which people are not married are even more likely to split up than homes in which people are married. Abortion became ubiquitous and fatherless homes, as we know, are now the norm in many parts of the West. My point in this litany is that 
these trends are known to everyone, but what we really aren't looking at is that the children of these homes, the adolescents of these homes, the young adults who then grow up without a model for how to create this institution called the family themselves. And I believe that a lot of our most pressing social problems are coming from the fact that the sexual revolution has been embraced uncritically across most of the West, certainly in all of its elite precincts, and that no one is countenancing the damage out there that is now pouring into the streets. Our campuses, our streets are full of young people who have no idea what to do except to rage, and they haven't even been supplied the proper language for their rage. And so what I'm trying to do in focusing on the sexual revolution is to identify a culprit in all of this that no one wants to look at for understandable reasons. Uh, we're all affected by these trends in one way or another in our own lives, in our own families. But what if something that most of us think is value-free turns out to be the cause of what ails us? This is the paradox I keep trying to drive at. I was recently in your country, and to reinforce what you said, there would be people who'd be angry about the things that we're now saying. Uh, let's face it, there would be, and they'd vehemently disagree, and they'd say, look, all of this has set us free, free, and yet the research is overwhelming. Um, on loneliness, you've got an explosion in loneliness because people have fewer children later in life, they have fewer siblings, fewer aunts and uncles, family relationships are much more uh, stressed or, and broken, and the demographic numbers from around the world, you've got a bubble of countries coming through in the 20s where there's a demographic collapse, another bubble coming through in the 30s, which uh, Australia is going to be part of, by the way, Australia, land of opportunity, where the birth rate is just absolutely in free fall. Um, so on the one hand, the research is very clear. We have fewer people to connect with. We are much lonelier. On the other, there's a really alarming research now, really alarming, showing that young people are actually increasingly very unhappy. And going back to my earlier point, you seem driven by this unhappiness. I'm driven by this unhappiness. How does it happen in the freest, even with our current difficulties, uh, most prosperous societies where we anticipate long lives, uh, where our lives can be extremely interesting, we're so deeply unhappy. So we can't get away from the fact that there is a problem. And I emphasize that because there's an inclination to say that the solution to the problem is more of the same, whereas common sense would say, perhaps we ought to stop digging while we're behind. The loneliness problem you describe is visible across the demographic spectrum now. It started out being documented among the elderly. Let's start there. Why are so many older people without people to visit them, without people who can call them by their first name? In every Western country, John, this is a, a mounting social problem. Again, I'm trying to get to the root cause of this. The root cause of the loneliness explosion is that inadvertently, but really, the sexual revolution subtracted people out of other people's lives. It did this by 
via family breakup, via the fact that people have fewer siblings, aunts, uncles, all of it. It's, a, it's an arithmetic problem in one sense, root of it. And we have signs all around us that are not in social science that this is the root problem. For example, let me mention a couple of specifics. The American rapper Tupac Shakur uh, wrote what I think is the most informative rap song uh, ever written. It's called Papa's Song, I believe. And in it, he offers the image of a boy who has to learn to play catch by himself, who has to learn to catch a baseball by himself because his father isn't there. And so the song is all about rage against this absent father. My point is in that example, the popular culture is telling us the same thing that some of us are trying to document with abstruse charts. Another example, straight from the headlines, we all know there have been a series of tragic shootings in the United States where teenagers have taken guns into schools and massacred people. In the latest such tragic example, the shooter left a note about why he did this. It's just happened. He said, I have no family, I have no friends. What more stark proof do we need about what's ailing kids out there? The problem, John, is that they are being told all the wrong remedies for their situation. And so, for example, if they listen to uh, climate change activists, young people are told you really shouldn't have kids because it's bad for the planet. Another abstraction in my view, which is not to say climate change isn't real, but to uh, devise your ethical uh, structure around something as abstract as the planet is pretty problematic, I think. Nevertheless, there are young people who are dead set on not having children because of the planet. Why is this a problem? Well, because if radical loneliness is the root cause of their woes, then telling them not to have kids is exactly the wrong kind of advice. I have a similar problem with a lot of contemporary feminism, the kind of career first feminism that those of us who were in college in the 1980s and uh, especially imbibed. You know, again, the idea that you should go through life as a woman and get your career all set and later, how much later in your 30s and your 40s, start to think about children. This is the wrong idea to feed people whose problem is loneliness and disconnection. So another reason I feel for the, the young of the West is that I think they're being bombarded with exactly the worst messages for their situation, which is why some of us need to work harder to get the word out there. You're being told, <clears throat> you're being told exactly uh, the thing that will make you more miserable. You touched on something there. Just uh, be interested in your views on uh, a little more uh, in relation to the gun laws. I'm often asked about them, even on US media, because we introduced a set of gun laws in Australia at the time that I was in government. It was controversial at the time. And I should add that uh, those laws allow you, if you have a legitimate reason for firearms, to obtain them. Uh, but um, 
there are illegitimate reasons for wanting firearms and you won't get one in Australia. Uh, but in America, so, so there's always this, why can't America do, do what Australia's done? It seems to me that one issue you're never allowed to raise is what is the very thing you've just touched on. What drives young kids, given that Americans have always had access to firearms, to do now what didn't happen in previous times? And part of the answer, let's bell the cat. It's one of the things we're really not allowed to talk about. It's fatherlessness. And yet I would have thought the social and economic cost of fatherlessness is so massive. It's the elephant in the room. I'm amazed that we're not allowed to talk about it. Why is it so taboo, given that it inflicts such misery, including on women, or perhaps particularly on women? That's another great question. I think the answer, the shortest answer, is that if we are allowed to talk about fatherlessness, then we cannot avoid the consequences of fatherlessness. And if we can't avoid those consequences, then we are threatening rollback of the sexual revolution. And that is something that a great many people in the West never want to see, is rollback in any form. I mean, look what happened when there was just rollback in the matter of abortion by the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case there was a lot of, uh, there was quite a bit of outpouring of rage about that decision. And for months in the United States, we've been bombarded with shout my abortion, other pro-abortion kinds of propaganda. Every leading newspaper finds stories about this every single day. Uh, that's to say that gives you an inkling of how fierce the denial and the resistance is out there. That's why nobody wants to talk about fatherlessness. It's not because the consequences aren't well documented. Ever since James Q. Wilson did his monumental work on crime uh, decades ago, it's been known that almost all violent criminals came from fatherless homes. That tells us something important, I think. Uh, similarly, getting back to the, case of these, the cases of these recent shooters, these kids also are coming almost to a man from fatherless homes. In fact, years ago, when I first started keeping track of the family situations of these killers, I found a case in which one of them uh, came from an apparently intact home. And I remember writing an asterisk next to it because it was that remarkable given the overall pattern. So again, John, I think we are being forced by events to bring all of this uh, depressing but important stuff to the table. And the problem we have in the United States, and maybe you have it in Australia, is that even on the conservative side, there's a lot of resistance to this in the name of libertarianism. Uh, and on the progressive slash liberal side, there's almost no willingness to talk about it at all. So that is the, the wall of denial that has to be broken through to get to a place where we can ask how to actually address these things. One of the areas in my country where this is most uh, noticeable for people who actually mix occasionally with Indigenous people on the ground is wise Indigenous leaders have said things to me like, can't you understand the damage that's being done to our young people? They are being socialised by the trash end of what they call whitey society. And you're still not allowed to talk about it in the name of civil libertarianism. 
despite the damage, despite the loneliness. Um, a couple of things I'd love to just seek your views on a bit more. Um, one is that um, you make the comment that strangely, one of the ironic uh, sort of outcomes of the sexual revolution was that it empowered, it actually has had the net effect in the long term of empowering the already powerful and weakening the weakened, the weak, the very thing that its proponents said it wouldn't do. How did the sexual revolution turn out to play into the desires of men? Not that they're doing very well, it has to be said, but at the cost of both women and children. So let's talk about the Me Too movement, because I think the Me Too movement offers robust evidence for the thesis that the sexual revolution has been bad for women. What happened during Me Too? Well, I had to read through a number of these accounts of accusations at one point because I was writing about them. Uh, and it was striking that men and women were describing things in very different ways. It was like a Rashomon play. Uh, they were describing the same event, but in words that made it clear they were coming from other planets. Now, you might say some of that is just the war between the sexes or the difference between the sexes, but I think it showed us something else. In case after case, you had these um, women, the product of elite universities in elite fields like <clears throat> Hollywood, journalism, et cetera, coming forward to say that these men had done terrible things. That is to say, these young women, no matter how well educated, had apparently been sent into the world without ever having been told, don't go to a man's hotel room at two in the morning, even if he is your boss, or especially if he is your boss. <clears throat> There's a kind of common sense knowledge that is lacking uh, out there that's very visible when you read through these accounts of depredation. And to say that is not, <clears throat> excuse me, to say that is not to judge any individual case. It's just to observe that there has been a descent of social knowledge about the opposite sex. How did this happen? It happened partly because with so many fatherless homes out there, how are boys or girls supposed to know what an adult man is about for better or worse? And with so many small homes, so many broken families, smaller families, there are just fewer people from whom to learn, you know? And to say that is not to point fingers, it's just to say that 50 years ago, say, when the West was less materially well off, it was still better off in terms of social capital than it is today because there were stronger families, because there were stronger and bigger networks because boys and girls, men and women were a little less of a mystery to each other because there were more people from whom to learn that stuff. This sounds very basic, but again, John, I think this goes to the, the root of so many of our problems. And the fact that if feminism has sent up all of this noise, obscuring the basic fact that women are unprotected out there in ways that feminism doesn't acknowledge, this does not help. Again, going back to that fascinating conversation on trigonometry, uh, and, and we'll put the strap line up for viewers who want to go and have a look at that. Uh, I think it's a bit over a year old, but it's a great conversation. 
You made the observation now that because we're so reluctant to talk about some of these issues ourselves, it might be useful to look at how uh, the animal kingdom, in fact, is uh, far more family-oriented towards its members than we might have previously thought. And a great deal of what animals learn when they're young comes from observing older animals and indeed other young animals. I found that very interesting. Yes, and it does give us a vernacular in which to discuss these things uh, that are otherwise very hard to discuss when we're talking about homo sapiens. So there has been an explosion of animal science uh, in the last couple of decades, especially uh, thanks to MRI imaging and all kinds of fascinating new instruments. And what it has taught is something that would have surprised previous generations. It has taught that most mammals live in families, in regular old nuclear and extended families. I opened the book Primal Screams with the image of the lone wolf. We all take this image for granted, but it turns out that in nature, there is not really such thing as a lone wolf. Wolves run around in family groupings. They don't run around in random packs. And the same is true of, of most other mammals. This is one reason, John, why elephants are increasingly not allowed in circuses, because now we know that elephant nature is intensely familial and that elephants suffer when they are taken away from their families. And so it seems deeply ironic to say the least that we know these things when it comes to other species. And on the progressive side of the spectrum, especially, there is no dearth of people lining up to help the elephants, to help the lions, to help them live in the communities they were meant to live in, which is to say they're family communities. And yet we can't turn that lens on ourselves. So what does it teach us that animals live this way? I think it teaches us a lot. For example, I give an example in Primal Screams of a time when young male elephants were rampaging in some park and the humans couldn't figure out how to stop this until one thought to um, fly in a bull elephant who was older and bigger and turned out that's all it took to make the younger elephants behave. Now that's not to say our problems are that easily solved, but that was indicative. Uh, another story from the animal world that I think is important about social learning concerns cats. This sounds so simple and isn't. So if you have a cat and that cat goes up a tree, is it able to get down or not? It turns out animal science has a lot to say about this. The reason some cats are able to climb down from trees is that they have watched other cats. They've had cats from whom to learn, typically mothers and siblings who have figured this out before them. Cats who go up trees and can't come down from trees are cats that haven't learned this because they haven't had the opportunity to observe others of their kind doing this thing. What does that tell us about the world we are in? It tells us that, again, by subtracting all of these people out of our lives, we have reached a kind of a nadir of social learning that wasn't there before. And that's why I keep 
using these examples about animals in primal screams because they are illustrations of what might otherwise sound like abstract arguments about social science. Interesting. Tell me, um, I'd be interested in your views. Recently, uh, the results of the last census in Australia were revealed and it emerged that fewer people uh, than ever uh, claim any attachment to Christian faith. Less than half Australians now identify as a Christian. Um, and there was much uh, you know, rejoicing in a lot of elite circles. You know, this is further evidence that uh, we're scientifically literate, that we're more rational, we're putting hatred and bigotry behind us because as people who believe the Bible seem to be so down on minority groups and so on and so forth. The flip side of that coin seems to me that we are lonelier, more tribalised, more distrustful, less coherent as a society. And no one seems to ask the obvious question, is there a relationship between the decline of Christianity and our increasing, I'm going to use the word very frankly, incoherency as a society? in your view? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I believe there's a connection there. Look, if you were unfortunate and you lost your parents and you didn't have a family, etc., all of that takes one way of constructing identity off the table. But kicking Christianity out of the public square takes the other obvious way of constructing identity off the table. If you were that figurative orphan, you could find a home in Christianity. It would teach you that you had obligations to real life fellow human beings, that you're supposed to do good works for them, that you are brothers and sisters united in Christ, that you have a place in the cosmos and a place of relationship to the supernatural, that you are made in the image of God. Christianity supplies a community ready-made, including for people who have no other community. And so trying to disgrace Christianity just hurts the most vulnerable by depriving them of that option too. And we have to ask ourselves, John, I, I know as well as you do what elites have to say about Christianity and what all the problems are with it, but are our societies really getting nicer because we've been liberated from all of that? In the United States, uh, the war against Christianity, it's putting it too strongly, but the, um, the adversaries of Christianity go after Christian charities. And this is a point I think is very important. They go after emergency pregnancy centers. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren said, for example, that she wanted to abolish all 300 of them in her state. They go after adoption agencies. They try to make it hard to send presents to kids in Guatemala if they have any kind of religious content, et cetera, et cetera. Who does this hurt? <laughs> this hurts the intended beneficiaries of these charities. So here we have an example where I think progressivism, the kind of progressives who support these efforts, who get up in the morning happy to be uh, making food and diapers less available to desperate women who need them for their babies, those kinds of people are not enhancing our public square. They're not making our societies a kinder, gentler place. 
And this problem, I think we see across the West, the idea that we will liberate ourselves by getting rid of Christianity uh, doesn't take into account that we are liberating ourselves from a code of conduct that tells us we are supposed to take care of one another, we are supposed to love one another, we are supposed to do good works and all the rest of it. So yes, I think the decline of Christianity across the West is part of the ferocity out there. It's, it's part of why politics feels so vicious these days because the code of conduct that would keep things more civil is, um, is on the decline. It does seem to me that uh, one of the consequences of people no longer regularly attending church services uh, where they're reminded of their own failings and reminded that they have an obligation to their neighbours and that forgiveness is a good thing is that we no longer do forgiveness. And I wonder how any society can work when we won't forgive. Lord Jonathan Sachs, sadly now no longer with us, made the observation to me, and listeners will have heard me say this, that uh, in the past perhaps, but our society no longer does forgiveness. The best you can hope for is that people might forget if we've made a mistake or done something inappropriate, but social media doesn't allow for that either. So we're very harshly judgmental. We seem to have found new ways of destroying people's lives if they dare to dissent. Yes, absolutely. And John, this is why I have some hope about identity politics and its eventual fate. I don't think we can live in this unforgiving prison that identity politics provides. I don't think human beings can live without forgiveness. And the problem with identity politics is that it casts everyone into the allies camp or the enemies camp. And if you are in the enemies camp, if you are an oppressor, there is never going to be exoneration for you. I think deep down, intuitively, people know that this trap can't go on, that everyone makes mistakes that they need to be forgiven for those mistakes. They need society to forgive them for those mistakes. And identity politics has no language for that. It has no mechanism for repentance and exoneration and redemption. And I believe over time that this will spell the doom of identity politics as people who find themselves in need of those things realize that they can't be had in this crabbed, little political world. You mentioned the word redemption because it's not just a willingness, is it, to forgive others. The Christian concept is that you can be forgiven and restored, so to speak. You know, you can, you can go on um, in a restored capacity uh, and, and, and be a useful contributor, participant and so forth. Whereas what I've noticed in this country is that what will sometimes happen now is that people will be, take a position, it's not popular, it may or may not have been the right thing to do, that's irrelevant. There's a pile on, social media massively exacerbates it. The person, and I've seen politicians do this, issue groveling apologies when actually often they've actually not done anything wrong. They ought to stand by their position and argue it, but no, the only way to get the howling pack off your back is to offer a groveling apology, but there's no redemption. You know, so you're on the scrap heap then. 
oh, you've apologised, good, you've admitted that you've done the wrong thing, you're an evil person, you deserve to be shut out, there's no restitution, don't think there's a way back for you. And that's quite a rapid change. Uh, I can think of one very prominent politician in Great Britain in the 1960s who did some very stupid things, was disgraced, but carefully set about doing good deeds for the rest of his life and died a hero. There was restitution. We don't even seem to do restitution anymore. When you've been killed by our culture, and I think this really terrifies young people, they think that's going to be the end of it for me. I've been, judgment has been passed on me uh, and there's no way back. Yes, that's absolutely part of the burden. <clears throat> part of the burden they carry around is the problem of social media, the problem that one single tweet or one stupid thing said on Facebook might prevent them from getting that job or worse yet, might prevent them from remaining a member in good standing in some political identitarian community. So this is one more burden that they carry around. Again, though, John, I think it's, it's so unnatural to live in this way, to live with no horizon of redemption, that I am hopeful about this. I think simple human nature is going to reassert itself on this point. That may be overly optimistic. Well, you and I are both active in the, in the, in the, in the hope that we can hopefully influence things for the better for the sake of people, not for the sake of winning arguments. Um, but to come back um, to this question of um, the loss of faith in the West, a few years ago I talked to a young person in Australia studying science and they had real questions arising out of their study of science about the existence of God. I asked that person more recently uh, whether that was why they decided not to practice their faith anymore and the reply was, oh, no, I, I realised long ago that science can't prove or disprove God. That argument's irrelevant. It has more to do with my experiences. It was an experiential argument. You know, I've looked for God. He doesn't seem to be there. You've said something pretty blunt, that losing God has nothing to do with reason and science. It has everything to do in living in ways which have made it harder for many people to hear his voice. I thought that was a very interesting insight. Thank you. This goes again to the family. And I know when many people hear the quote, the family invoked, their eyes glaze over. And that shouldn't happen because the point about the connection between religiosity and the family is elemental, I think. So ever since Nietzsche, it's been assumed by uh, sophisticated people that quote, God is dead. Uh, that's the metaphor. I'm proposing a different metaphor. I am proposing that God's not dead. We've gone deaf and we've gone deaf because we are no longer participating in creation in a way that allowed the people before us a glimpse of divinity. We, generally speaking, no longer have those rhythms of constant exposure to birth, to death, to loss, to sacrifice, which is what family life is, it is one sacrifice after another, that gives us a glimpse into the beyond and into the idea that there is a purpose to this. A lot of people today have lost this, John. They don't have those elemental connections, or if they do, they don't have them in the same supply with the same intensity. And so 
I believe that what is dryly called secularization in the West reduces to exactly this. After the sexual revolution, many people wanted to live as if these connections didn't matter. And the loss became theirs because what living in this atomized way has done to us, has done to humanity, is to decrease the chances of understanding our connection in the cosmos. You touched on uh, conservatives not being willing to, perhaps not even able to mount the case for traditional values anymore. Uh, and we've talked about how it's almost impossible to talk about family anymore. I know you don't see yourself as a policy person, uh, but I'm just wondering whether you have any sort of ideas as to how political leaders given that politics now and, and governments, this is one of the great ironies, in the absence of God, they become the arbiters of what's right and wrong. The law becomes the standard setter. The law comes to determine, not so much reflect what is right and wrong, but to determine what is right and wrong. Because increasingly the law and government are upstream of culture rather than downstream, which was the traditional democratic model. In the face of this, if you were in the old days, the Labour Party in, in Britain and America particularly were fierce defenders of the family, fierce. It was one of the mantras they always ran. In quite short order, it's gone. Uh, these days, the left seems to have stopped talking about the importance of family altogether. I do meet uh, many people on the right side of politics who say, this is really serious. How do we get back into this debate? Any, any clues? I know you say you're not a policy person, but what should leaders do in the face of this carnage? Because it is carnage. Anybody who wants to deny that, just go and look in my country at the stats around how so many young people are suffering anxiety, depression, self-harm. Look at the breakdown in, 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 in uh, trust uh, and in relationships. You can't deny it. It's very real. Someone needs to lead. How do you do it in this, 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 this environment that we're in today, do you think, Mary? Apart from the sort of work you're doing, what do political leaders do? From the point of view of policy, I think given the undeniable empirical record out there about what family decline has done to our societies, we need politicians to look at every possible experiment that would make it easier to get married, easier to have families, easier to have families of size. We're talking about incentives and the, those incentives will be ferociously opposed by people who think that marriage shouldn't be privileged. I think the record shows that it should. That's one kind of answer. Another kind of answer is to go after some of the things that we know are bad for family formation. <clears throat> One of the most frustrating things in the United States is that we have, for example, very good laws on the books, lawyers tell me so, against obscenity, and yet there's no prosecution of pornography anywhere. This is something that needs to be gone after. It is a proven contributor to romantic trouble, to marital breakup. It's often cited in divorce cases now. We need to do something about pornography. That's something else uh, that falls to policymakers to consider. Now, outside of policy, there are 
experiments, grassroots experiments that I think will be all for the better. <clears throat> In the United States, we have the experiment of classical schools, for example, non-denominational private schools, charter schools, where Greek and Latin are taught, where uh, non-anti-American history is taught, uh, et cetera. These grassroots experiments in education, I think over the long run will be all to the good uh, of the family. And I think uh, similarly, the fact that the parents of America seem to be awakening to the problem of what is taught in American public schools is also all to the good. So we have to clear away uh, some of what's uh, clogging everything up out there. And I think we're we're seeing signs of life on all of those fronts. So that's an, an initial laundry list for policymakers and uh, institution builders. I'm sure you're right. I mean, one of the uh, the things that a former treasurer, Peter Costello, often used to say here that in Australia is that good economics is very good social policy. And as an example of that, housing affordability in this country has become a huge issue. Young people cannot get a house. It is influencing the way they live their lives enormously, including family formation. Very hard to put a roof over your head now. But extraordinarily, one of our most fantastic thinkers and writers in this country, Judith Sloan, uncovered that in some Treasury papers that um, uh, Treasury in this country is making a reference to the economic burden on cost of uh, motherhood. And what have we got to when smart people in treasuries can't understand that demographic collapses, rapidly aging populations present the most massive economic costs you could ever imagine. And I think I'm just saying that um, even at the highest level, there is a lack of clear thinking about the importance of family formation, not just for producing balanced, adjusted children who can relate well, but children in the numbers you need for a functioning society in the future. The privileging of motherhood would be a very good thing to bring back. Um, I am no spokesman for any government, including governments other than the one I live under, but I would observe that Hungary is experimenting with some very interesting ideas on the family front. And one of them is that women with four or more children do not have to pay income tax for the rest of their lives. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly what we should try, but it's certainly an example of a policy that might have a pretty significant effect on people's thinking about family size. Uh, so those are the kind of initiatives that I think our governments should be looking at. Well, Mary, you've been very generous with your time. I'll round out, um, if I may, with just a reference you, uh, or a question around. You gave a speech in the New South Wales Parliament. Uh, New South Wales is the biggest state for those listeners uh, who are not Australian in, uh, in this country. Uh, and uh, I understand that you focused a bit on this issue of the rage if I can use that word, that we now bring to our political discourse. It's almost as though we use rage against an alternative view as a sort of loyalty test. And it strikes me that one side of politics is, and I'm using my left hand here, is a little inclined to use the, the, the what might be called the, um, the sort of tyranny of righteous intimidation to get others to agree, and if you don't agree, well, your loyalty's not there, so you're attacked. 
The other side using my right hand is a little inclined to engage in sheer ugly rage and disrespect for other people. When did the much touted idea that we've all got to live in tolerance, and now tolerance is a useful virtue, I would have thought it was less powerful than love and the idea that you commit to your neighbour whether you like them or not, but tolerance was the big catch cry. You must be tolerant of people that are different view. It's morphed surprisingly rapidly into this idea that when you get involved in politics, your starting point is one of anger and of rage. How did that happen in your view quite so quickly and quite so badly? I think partly the demise of civility that you're describing is due to the fact that uh, Christianity no longer puts hard brakes on that stuff in the minds of many people. In other words, throw out the Christian code of loving your neighbor, and there's no reason not to go after your neighbor. So this is partly a, a religious problem. Second, I think that uh, they're one of the biggest disputes of our time, and this has been ongoing since the 1960s, is over the sexual revolution, whether it's a good thing or whether we should take a second look and say, we need to rein this thing in. And we have to understand that's what's central in these fights over religious liberty that we're seeing. These, these no hold bar, holds barred, go after anybody, make them lose their jobs, ruin their good name, et cetera. What we are seeing there is a fight over the sexual revolution. That is the only thing that these skirmishes are about. They are not about the commandment against stealing. They are not about the question of uh, saints or the role of Mary or any of that stuff. It's all about whether there will or will not be rollback of these thing, this thing given its consequences. So I think part of what we have to do, and I mean this especially for the conservative side, is understand these seismic shifts that we are seeing that are affecting our society and we also have to not be that bad example uh, of somebody violating the norms of what should be the norms of civility ourselves. So this is a message again, uh, especially to the right, I think, because we have to lead when we know that the other side won't in these matters. A young person who says, I get it, my life is really going to, you know, be measured in terms of relationships rather than material success. But it's very hard in this day and age. Any advice for those young people who want to break the mold, who don't want to get caught in this deep vortex of the breaking of everything from romance through to meaningful relationships later in life and the whole continuum of, of, of shattered relationships that, that now so blights Western societies? Several simple things. Put down your phone. Don't look at pornography. <clears throat> join something and try church. Try places where you'll find real life community and a community of people who might have your back in a way that uh, identity politics online and connections online never could. They sound simple, but again, young people don't hear positive remedies to the situation that many of them are trapped in. And I think those suggestions might be a good start. Mary, thank you for your time. I wish you all the best. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. 
You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.